how's everybody doing this morning? You holding up? Anybody else's kids? You have little kids that are just worn out? Our kids this morning, they got up, went to breakfast, and then came back and wanted to take a nap already. So they're having a great time. Uh, Just out of curiosity, how many of you, show of hands, how many of you still sing hymns in your church? A lot of you? Yeah? We do, we do too. I mean, we do a lot of the modern, probably mostly uh, the modern kind of worship uh, songs and that kind of thing, but uh, that's something that I, I really think is important. Uh, we actually did a series not too long ago in our church, well, it was a while ago, uh, called Hymns, These Thous and a Thousand Hallelujahs, and we kind of went through some of the different, you know, How Great Thou Art was one of them, uh, Mighty Fortress, di- different hymns and their theologies uh, behind them. And, and one of the things I've recognized um, is that hymns, in a lot of ways, are, are portable theology, did you know that? That's in, in many ways how we learn. If you grew up in a tradition like that, that's how you learn a lot of theology about Christ, the cross, I mean, the return of Christ. I mean, all these things are packaged in these hymns. How many of you have been singing a, a hymn or a song and then later you realize that was actually straight from Scripture? Like you're reading in the Bible and you're like, oh, I knew that first, but from a song. And so that's, I think, an interesting and also important thing um, uh, to keep going. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing this, but I keep having these moments where I'm like, we could go either way. Got a couple of different options here. Um, quick story. I think this applies. Maybe not. Uh, <laughs> a couple years ago, I, uh, first of all, I'm an introvert, like big time. And like, like if I have to make a phone call, I think through what I'm going to say before I call the person. Just to, sometimes I make notes. Anybody else do that? It's crazy, right? Uh, and so for some reason I decided as an introvert that um, what I should go do is do an improv class. <laughs> like why not conquer my biggest fear? Uh, you know improv, that's like get up on stage and uh, basically the, the audience shouts out, you're two, no offense, you're two Russians in a hot air balloon, go, right? And you just have to start talking and hopefully it's hilarious, at, you know, all that. So I felt like, and I really do think God prompted me to do this, and I, instead of just taking a class at like my local, like a, you know, auditing a class or at a community center, I decided to take an improv class at Second City Comedy School in Chicago, which is like the premier improv school in the country. Steve Carell, Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, all these greats have come out of Second City. So, I don't know why I'm telling you guys this, is horrible. Uh, I go there, and... First day of this class, I'm taking this like week-long intensive course. And first of all, I know I'm in trouble when I look around the 30 people in the class and they're all like actors, like trained, like stand-up comedians. One guy there is a vaudeville performer, whatever that is. I'm the only pastor <laughs> taking this class. And the very, first, the very first exercise, day one, exercise one, we get in a circle and somebody's in the middle and they go around and they face... Somebody, all the people are facing the people, person in the middle. And the person goes to an outside person and says to them, where are my papers? And then they respond, they are in my attache. Only, you're supposed to do it with your best German accent. Where are my papers? And that, I mean, I was like, we're doing accent work as like the, the start. So I'm, I'm in huge trouble. Later that day, or maybe the second day, we're doing a scene where... Um, uh, it was groups of two or three, and one person would walk out on the stage, and they would mime doing some kind of activity. You know, you're a server, you're walking around, you're carrying a tray. 
The second person would then come in after about 10 seconds of this and join them. You know, they're supposed to be sweeping up the floor or something. And then the first person would say a line to the second person, and the second person would respond. That's all you get. So I'm in this group with another guy. He walks out on stage and starts doing this. And I'm backstage going, I, what is he even doing? And I have no idea. And the instructor's like, get out here. You know, you don't have, the whole point of improv is you can't think. You just got to act and trust that, like, your brain will give you words to say. So I walk out on stage very awkwardly, like, and I don't know what he's doing. And so I just, I, I guess he's fishing. I don't know. I, don't, I'm, I know it's not going to be right. And so I just, like, <laughs> I start fishing. And now it's his turn to say the line to me, and he says, why in the world are you bringing a fishing pole to a movie set? And I realized, oh, that's what we're doing. We're on a, mo- we're on a movie set. We're not fishing. Uh, anyway, I wish I had had, the, I wish I'd had the, the presence of mind to say, didn't they tell you I fish on all my movies? Uh, but again, I'm an introvert. I think of that stuff later, not in the moment. Just give me time. Um, Anyway, the end of the week, I felt like I, still hadn't, like I still hadn't done what I was supposed to do. I, could just, I was still filtering everything and trying, just calculating and trying to control. You know that feeling? And I was just getting frustrated with myself. And I'm going into the last day of class, and I'm recognizing, I, I, like, I feel like God called me to do this, strangely enough, and I haven't done it. And, you know, I'm surviving, and that's about it. And I remembered, you know, when I'm with my kids, I don't have any trouble being a goofball. I'm crazy, we make up songs and voices, and we're running around doing all kinds of stuff that you would think was insane. Uh, and so I just gotta kinda tap into that. And so anyway, the, the very last exercise that we did, it was a, a game called, or a scene called Oscar Moment. And you know how in the Oscars, when they're showing the, the, the movies and the actors that are up for nomination, they'll play the, the clip of a really dramatic moment? Uh, <laughs> he said this. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna make up a movie and you are going to amplify whatever that emotion is times a thousand. So you take your regular emotion and like to the moon. And so it's just pure emotion. I'm gonna call one of you out, I'm gonna single you out and everybody else on the stage is gonna fade out and you're gonna just amplify that emotion. I'm literally shaking. Like I'm like, uh, and I'm trying to decide, am I gonna get up out of my seat and leave or am I gonna walk up on that stage knowing there's no way out of it? There's no way out once you're up there. So I go up there with my group of two other people. The audience, very kind of them, yells out our fake movie title, which was, in this case, Cake Factory Disaster. And I just said, I'm just going to start this because I've learned I just, I'm just going to have to go for it. And I just got to jump in. And so I start yelling at Carol, made up, you know, whatever her name was. But, Carol, you've ruined the cake mix again. This is going to jeopardize our family. I mean, I just kind of start going off on her. And the instructor says, pause, Matt. Amplify that emotion times a thousand. And so the other people kind of just fade back. And I just had to decide uh, if I was going to do this or not. And I just, I actually don't even know what I said. Probably some things I can't repeat here. I just, I just absolutely let go and just, and he's like, more emotion. I'm like, throwing invisible tables over and just go crazy. And I, I, I get done with that. And uh, <laughs> he says, Matt, because he recognized that was out of character for me. And he said, well, how did that feel? And I said, I don't know. I kind of blacked out a little bit, I think. (laughs) I really don't know. I felt good, but I don't know what happened. Uh, (laughs) 
Why am I telling you this? Because it's just a lesson that I've learned in life. If I can take that back to my relationships and where I am when things aren't quite that challenging, just the lesson of being fully present, just trusting what God has put in you, that he'll give you the words to say, that you can just go for it and and just kind of let go of control. For some of you type A people, uh, it was really, really kind of a life-changing thing for me. Leading me to this moment right now, I'm not sure what I'm gonna say, and it's okay. Right, we got two directions. Are you guys feeling, you worn out? A little bit tired? A little bit? Um, let me ask you this. How many of you uh, in your churches, you have some practice where you recite either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed? A show of hands. We've got a few of you. And others, no, we, ne- we never do that. Um, and there, there are some reasons for that. Uh, those of you who do do that, you'll, be, you'll like this, I think. Um, those of you who don't, I mean, sometimes we don't because it's not, it kind of seems old or antiquated. It's not like modern worship, right? Other times, other traditions, we don't because um, it seems like a Catholic thing or like a mainline church thing if we're against that or whatever. Um, so we have reasons why we don't do this. But you should know that the vast majority of Christians, historically and globally, The creed, either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, has been a unifying thing. It's been a foundation of our faith. Other people we don't, other groups don't uh, uh, use the creed in worship because they say, well, we have the Bible, why do we need, right? You maybe have heard that. I want to show you something here in just a minute, but let me just lead into this by saying, for the last time, referencing traveling. Uh, And I came back from that, and I told you that it was easy relationally, It wasn't challenging to do whatever I wanted whenever I felt like it, right? There's another part of this. It was very, very challenging to me at the level of my faith. I graduated from a Christian college with a degree in Christian ministries. And I set out on this this world uh, tour by myself. And, And I remember very early on in the trip, I met a guy and I told him about what I was doing. He was a German guy. And he said, you know, that a trip like this that you're about to, I met him at the airport at O'Hare, getting on the plane to go to Europe. He said, this is either going to take away your faith or it's going to really deepen your beliefs. And he wasn't even a Christian. And I had no idea at the time um, how significant it was like that word was in my life. So I went several months without knowingly meeting another Christian. Not going to church, not, you know, you go to these churches that are empty in Europe, Uh, and I'm in Muslim countries, I'm in Hindu, Buddhist countries. And I remember I started having lots of questions. I don't know if any of you have ever had like a crisis of faith. Um, You know, I'd I'd be in India and I'd see these kids begging and I'd see the kids that were, uh, like the parents purposefully maimed them, dislocated hips and so on, so that the kids would be more compelling beggars. They could take the money back to the parents. I saw stuff like that. I remember being in India looking out over uh, the balcony and seeing just thousands of people below and having this thought. If I had been born here, what are the chances that I would be a Christian? Very small. Odds are, just like everybody I'm looking at, I would be a Hindu. And then, then I started thinking, wait a second, that means that I'm a Christian in part because of where I was born, which I had no control over. And so slowly these questions started just messing with me. Um, I'd be in places like Turkey or Indonesia, and you hear the, 
oh, you know, you hear the thing at the be- in the morning, the call to prayer. It was just like, and all these people are really devoted and passionate. And anyway, uh, very, very long story short, I came back with a lot of doubts. And again, I don't know if anybody's ever been there, or you've had a professor, or you've read a book, or you, you know, and the, the faith that you were taught, and then what you're experiencing, it's like, ooh, these, how do you reconcile these two things together? Well, I went to a former religion professor of mine, his name was Dr. Keith Drury, and I went to him and I sat down and I said, here's where I am. And I have all these questions and I'm not sure what I believe anymore, and this is kind of embarrassing because I have a, a degree in Christian ministries. I'm supposed to be a pastor. And he said something to me that I really wasn't expecting. He told me a story how when he was a, a doctoral student at Princeton, that he had professors and he read books and he ran into people who were smarter than him, and he was a brilliant guy, smarter than him, and he said, I met people early on who could argue me under the table. Like, I couldn't win uh, in a, like a debate with them. And so he said to me, I learned early on that at some level, faith is a stubborn determination of the will. That at some point, faith is drawing a line in the sand and saying, you can back me up to a certain point, and you can probably win this argument on that topic, but here I stand, and I'm not gonna back up from here. And he told me that the line for him was the, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. The, he says this phrase, the irreducible minimum, which I'm gonna reference here in just a minute. The irreducible minimum of the Christian faith. Anyway, that really saved me in a lot of ways. It enabled me to understand for the first time, oh, it's not just what I'm feeling and what had all these emotions. Remember that quote from Mother Teresa? 50 years not sensing God's presence? She didn't abandon God because for her, her faith at some level was a determination. Does that make sense? It was a choice. This, on this ground I stand and you're not gonna, I'm not gonna move. Um, one of the things I tell my church a lot is I say, if you really wanna understand the Bible, better, if you really want the Bible to come alive, then study biblical uh, geography. And they look at me just like you're looking at me right now. Uh, so of course, I've, no one's ever taken me up on this, uh, but it, it's true. Um, and to that end, a couple years ago, four, actually five years ago, uh, Liz and I, with three friends from church, we went to Turkey, and we wanted to explore some of the biblical sites, you know, the seven churches in Revelation, and Many, Galatia, uh, Colossae, I mean, these, these places where a lot of the New Testament takes place. And we tried to film some of it to bring back to our church in Muncie. And one of the things that I wanted to do, following up from that conversation I had with the professor about the Nicene Creed, is I wanted to trace the history and the development of the creed. This thing that in many ways had like helped save and restore my faith. And so I want to show you this video. Does that sound okay? It's a little bit of a change of pace. Uh, it, this is not me standing in front of ruins preaching. Sorry. Uh, this is a little more of a... <laughs> this is a little bit more of a kind of a short documentary sort of feel to it. It's a little bit slower on purpose, trying to kind of show the life and the history and make it... If you read the story of the, the Nicene Creed in history books, you will fall asleep. So we're trying to not do that. Uh, and so we're trying to mix it up and make it interesting. A couple things before we watch this, and we're going to watch it, and it's about 26 minutes, and then we'll take a break. Um, we're, not, 
we're not professionals, we're amateurs at this. We're, I'm not Ray Vanderlaan, okay? He's doing his thing. We're not even trying to do that. Um, a couple other things maybe I want to say. Oh, I noticed just, I was pulling this up right before this, trying to figure out which way I was going to go. In the audio, there's a couple places where the audio, it seems like off from the, I don't know why it's doing that. It wasn't doing that before. My computer's doing something weird. I recognize that. Sorry, okay? Uh, so, here we go. <laughs> okay, that's all I want to say. Let's go. Get the lights off would be great. Get that guy off there. We got a, a week, you know, to go. The more I kind of get into this, the more I actually end up having to research, you know, for it. Um, I'll probably have 100 pages of notes or so. So I probably have 30 books, you know, on my desk right now. The research for me has just been sort of like coming up with ideas on how, you know, how to experience little things that we can do, and and maybe even of the time of Paul. But I'm I'm toying with the idea of maybe not wearing deodorant, you know, and. Well, <laughs> really Which different from normal. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which will affect you guys a lot more than me. I just hope that, and even on a, the spiritual aspect of it, you know, I, I just hope to discover some new things that we yeah. can help bring bring a new life back to things that we've done before. You That's know? cool. That's really cool. couple of my fears are, are this. One, having not been at a bunch of these places, just not knowing what to expect. I mean, I wanna, we wanna bring this to life and tell the story and, and do it in a way that's like, there's application and it's inspiring and challenging. But I'm, we're gonna show up and, and be like, I, I don't, what is this, you know? And, and just have to figure it out as we go. I just want this to be, I just want it to translate. I just want people to get how how big of a deal the faith was for, for these early Christians. When you're standing in the place where, for the first time in human history, they said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equals Trinity. You know, that's like a, that's like a big deal, and it happened in a specific place. Um, I don't know if that, does that translate to film or not? I don't know.
indigo green song. Right here, took this ferry up like this, and then it crossed over. So then we come here, and we're somewhere, I don't know, somewhere in the city. Oh, there it is, Capitol. Teşekkürler. <gülüyor> teşekkürler. Teşekkürler. Çok çok teşekkürler. Çok çok. Beş büyük. Beş büyük. Muşmula. Muşmula. Döngel. Döngel. Üç tane ismi var. İsmi iyi. İzlikte ne kadar? Kaç gün? Bugün e, doktor. Perşembe. Ne? Tuzday mı? Sunday değil. Bugün ne? Tuesday, Sunday, Saturday. İstanbul. Take a drive, drive, and then on a boat, boat off the river. Yeah, the river, and then drive to Alinç. Istanbul. Yeah, Istanbul. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. 
Istanbul. So I was just walking around up here and getting ready to look at part of the structure and um, this guy came down with his tractor um, and I had no idea what he was saying but he wanted me to follow him so I just kind of follow him over here and uh, he needed help with his tree. One of his trees had fallen. He had three names for it. I'm not, we'll have to recap the footage. Um, but basically this tree had blown over and um, he needed somebody to just kind of literally like help him hold up the tree so he could tie it. Um, I had no idea what he was really wanting. That was really cool. Was, uh, that was a really neat experience here, so. So why did they have to have a, why did they try to put it into words? Like why did they need it in, a, in some sort of a creed? Yeah. You know, some people are really anti-creed. So, right. So why do we have, why did they spend so much time and energy in hundreds of years mm -hmm. just to make up a creed? Like, why not just the Bible? Like, why is that, uh -huh. you know, why do we have to have more than that? I think that's a good, a good question. You can make a good case that when Jesus, in Mark chapter 8, he, he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond back. They say, some say that you're Elijah, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say that you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You can make a case that that's actually the it's like the beginning of putting your faith into a statement. I am standing on the foundation of Constantine's summer palace at a place called Nicaea, on Lake Nicaea. It has a different name today. I'm getting splashed by the water. One of the things that really makes this location and this particular historical moment significant is you have for the first time in like 200 years all these bishops, 300 plus bishops, all the other church leaders gathering in one place. And they get to see with their own eyes how universal the church had become. And so, in other words, before this, it would be easy to get the impression that while you know a bishop in a neighboring town or you know of other congregations in your general vicinity, you wouldn't really have any way of knowing at, you know, up until now, at this point, how universal, how widespread the church had actually become. And so. There was a lot of excitement as these church leaders gathered in this room and there was people speaking all kinds of different languages with different traditions, all gathering in the name of Jesus in one place. And so just tons of excitement as, as you got to kind of experience that and see that with your own eyes for the first time in the history of the church. Well, one of the main tasks of this first council meeting here at Constantine's Palace was to basically deal with this pastor, uh, he was an elder of a church in Alexandria, his name was, was Arius, and Arius had proposed this idea that was really gaining a lot of popularity uh, in, in various church settings, and his, his concept or his, uh, his proposal was this, he had this motto, Arius said, there was a time when the Son, referring to Jesus, was not. In other words, Jesus was actually created by God, he was a part of creation, and Arius was careful to say that Jesus was like the first, you know, thing, being to be created, but he was definitely separate from God. He was not co-eternal with the Father. And so as this idea gained popularity, what was basically at stake was the divinity of Christ. So these bishops gather to essentially 
come to a consensus on what is Arius right or wrong. Now, Arius couldn't actually speak at the council. He wasn't a bishop. So he got another guy, uh, Bishop um, Eusebius of Nicomedia, actually near here, to represent his case. Both of them honestly thought that if they just presented their cause and their logical argument for why Jesus was really separate from God and part of creation and not one with God and divine with God, that if they just presented their case that everybody would see the, the logic and, and you know easily agree. The exact opposite actually happened. They, they read their speech and all the bishops almost unanimously started shouting out, you know, you blasphemy, this is heresy, you lie. They ripped the speech out of uh, the bishop's hands and tear it up. The council totally rejected any notion that Jesus was created by God. Uh, the council unanimously decided Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. And really from there recognized we've got a bit of a situation because Arius and his followers are using, you know, they're pulling verses out of the Bible to support their view that Jesus isn't divine. They're abusing it and distorting it and taking things out of context. So that really gave birth to the Nicene Creed. There was another bishop there from Caesarea and he actually had this creed that they used in their worship in his hometown. And he proposed this creed as a starting point. And from there, the church really developed this creed. There were several iterations of this creed. It became known as the Nicene Creed. And to this day, it is the most universal creed of the church. Um, we're perhaps more familiar with the Apostles' Creed because it's shorter, but that's actually from Rome. And so the Eastern Orthodox Church and the, the Syrian Orthodox and the, uh, the Oriental Orthodox, the whole Eastern branch of the church doesn't actually use the Apostles' Creed, but all the branches, including Catholicism, including the main denominations in, in Protestant, Protestant denominations, all of them use the Nicene Creed. So it is historically the most universal foundational creed to define Orthodox Christian belief. Five years following the, the first council, you actually had an uprising again of, of Arianism. It had a lot of political, um, political roots to that, but it, it gained momentum again, this movement that said Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. And it wasn't actually until 55 years later, in 381, the emperor at the time, Theodosius, had another council, and so bishops from all over the world, church leaders, came to this church and it was in 381 that they essentially, finally uh, overturned the Arian um, heresy, the Arian movement. It's safe to say that here, the creed as we know it was officially adopted in its more final form. I'm sitting in front of St. Irene's, it, it, it means holy peace. And this is significant, it was the first church that Emperor Constantine built in his new city of Constantinople. It's also the only church to have never been turned into a mosque. It survived by being used by the Turks as an arms storage facility. 
Uh, from a church history perspective, in 381, Emperor Theodosius called together the Second Ecumenical Council. And so bishops came, again, from all over the world. They met here. They took the foundation of the Nicene Creed, which happened 55 years earlier, and they added to that language about the Holy Spirit. You have Cappadocian fathers who are here present at the council, and because of their influence, you can make a compelling case that for the first time, really in the history of the church, the language of the Trinity was articulated. And so that actually happened here behind those walls, and that has huge implications for how we understand our faith and what it means to be people who worship the triune God of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. knows that St. Irene's is over there. I mean, to them, it's just another building in the palace. Well, it's funny, because even if you think about the... It's, there's nobody over there. <laughs> there's, there's literally... Like, we could film over there amongst thousands of people because nobody knows it's there. And, like, you know, if this were... If this were a, a you know, quote-unquote, Christian place, we'd have a whole bunch of trinkets with the Nicene Creed on it. You know, and, and, yeah. Yeah, hey, that's <laughs> except for we'd probably get carried away. So, so why were they so set on defining this and, like, excluding other people? Yeah. I guess the reality is the vast majority of people, what it, what it did was it actually, it actually is more inclusive than exclusive in, in this sense. I could take any verse of the Bible and find Christians, other believers throughout the world who would, who would have a different viewpoint on that than I do. You know, you could always debate an endless sort of back and forth on a lot of things at least. But one thing that we, that all Christians can agree on is the creed. And so in some ways it becomes a unifying, I, I would say it like this, that the creed, the Nicene Creed especially, is the irreducible minimum that you can actually believe and still call yourself a, a Christian. Yeah. And so in that sense, it's very, it, that's pretty inclusive because we're not talking about how long the earth, you know, we're not talking about views on creation. We're not talking about modes of baptism. We're not talking about worship style. Sort of gives you a place to start. This is, this is the core, the essential essence of the Christian yeah. faith. So you're saying without any one of these lines, take any of these lines out mm -hmm. and you don't have the Christian faith anymore. Exactly, exactly. One of the things that, that I just feel like has been, it's been really, to be honest, has been really a struggle for me is like, you know, as Christians, you know, we have, I mean, basically the debate is over, um, you know, the deity of Christ. Um, it's over, um, you know, it's basically, you know, people fought over uh, whether, you know, whether Jesus was fully fully God, whether he was like the adopted son, whether he was, you know, made by God, when he was, you know, and it's sometimes I, it's a bit overwhelming because um, I feel like, it, and, and to some degree, it's like, like, how do we know this, you know, like, how do we, um, how do we, how do we even like theorize over this, you know, I mean, like, how do we have this theology, you know, how, where do we, where do we get this from, you know? like this discussion on it and that it's, it was, you know, what they fought for 50 years over it, I think is what Matt said. Well, I find it like, it's greatly important to you kind of make that decision for yourself. It's also like extremely troubling to have to make that decision. 
One of the cool things for me about the creed is that, you know, the word creed from Latin, credo, just means I believe. And there's something for me really profound about the fact that, I mean, we all know that we can't prove God exists. I believe. Mm. You know, I believe. I can't, I can't, you know, 100% definitively prove that. But this is what I believe. And I think the first time I was in Turkey, several years ago, and in some other places, I, I kind of came back from that, from traveling, with a lot of questions about my beliefs and, and my faith. And, you know, I encountered lots of people from other belief systems, other religions, like you see around us today. And I came back just with tons of questions about this. And I actually went to a former college professor, a religion professor, and was talking to him about it. And you know, he said, this is why we have the creeds. Yeah. The creeds essentially become the, the solid ground that we stand on. Yeah. And you can ask questions about pretty much anything. But he said, the creed is where you just draw the line in the sand. And you say, yeah. on this ground I stand. And I'm just going to stubbornly choose to say, this is what credo. This is what this I believe. Is and I can't prove it, but this is what this is what I have it's like faith a de- It's about. like a determination of the will yeah. and a, a, a conscious faith conscious choice. Conscious choice, uh-huh. yeah. Conscious yeah. faith choice, Hope you enjoyed that, learned something new. Uh, one thing I wish I would have added uh, is, you know, for the, the language of the creed, it has all these, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in life everlasting, life of the age to come, all this pretty grand 
you know, huge cosmic sort of language. Right in the middle of that, it says, uh, believe in Jesus, crucified under, what's it say? Pontius Pilate. That is an odd name that's to, to get a, an appearance in this, this creed that's been, you know, they've they fine-tuned every single word to make it as, as, you know, as clear as possible. And so people have asked, why include a third-rate Roman governor in the great creed of the church? And the reason is because these guys knew, these men and women knew that that's where our sin takes place, in actual history, and that Jesus entered actual history. And so they're very careful to put crucified under Pontius Pilate, uh, that, he, that he showed up within our story and within our humanities.